Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I am Ross Kenyon. Christoph Jospe is here with me. Look, we have a video camera on us for the first time ever doing the podcast, so we are excited about that. Yeah, we're still in Wichita, no-till on the plains, finishing up now. Indeed. Carry on, my wayward son, Kansas. God, God, you just had to find a way. The last episode, he had to do the Seven Nation Army reference, and then Kansas got it this time. It did. Are you you done? Almost. Almost. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, no till on the planes, learning a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about what we learned because we're here with another attendee who was there at the conference. She flew all the way from Australia. So if we just shout, Aussie, 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 she might just feel compelled to say, oi, oi, oi. Um, That that basically happened the other day. (laughs) We we try to be geographically sensitive, throw in references to help our listeners contextualize what we're doing. I don't think it works, but it makes us laugh a little bit. As noted, around three to four percent of our listeners come from Australia, which means 3% of our guests should probably come from Australia. So we've already had Charlie Massey. That was our first. Now is our second. Sitting here to my right is Louise Edmonds. She is founder of a company called Intuit Earth. She is also a composter. I look forward to getting into what Intuit Earth is all about and what it means to compost and why it's so amazing and everyone should be doing a whole lot more of it. And she's also been quite instrumental in building and sort of advancing a lot of the work that's really important for things that we'd like to see more of across the world, which is sequestering carbon and putting it in places that create value, like in the soils. And so we'll probably get into that too. Louise is a podcast listener, so she knows what she's in for. It's always great to have these sorts of guests and fellow travelers. So without any further ado, Louise, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are and the story of how you got to working on reversing climate change? Uh, Well, it's quite a journey, probably about the last 20 or so years. It started in my first year of university. I took an an elective called ecofeminism, and I read a book by a woman called Dr. Vandana Shiva called ecofeminism, and it was really talking about the similarities between the oppression of nature and the oppression of women. Um, anyone who has read or heard Vandana, she's a very erudite woman who explains things exceptionally well. And from that book, I really understood how oppression works all over the globe, obviously starting in developing countries, um, beginning with the Green Revolution and the oppression of people who are working on the lands, indebting them, stripping them of their biological wealth, biological diversity, and yeah, really destroying the environment and making them dependent on chemicals and genetically modified crops and so on and so forth. This is this is Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution you're referring to? Yeah, uh, the Green Revolution. Mm-hmm. So are you familiar with the Green Revolution? Yes, uh, I'm playing dumb a little bit in case the audience wants to learn a bit more. 
Okay, so the Green Revolution started after World War II when we had massive amounts of leftover munitions which formed the foundations of fertilisers. So we were like, okay, so what do we do with all these things? And so we decided that we would make fertilisers and that we would sell them to developing countries. Um, And those developing countries embraced the fertilisers and as a result of embracing the fertilisers in the early years saw massive, massive increases in yields. But over time that turned into soil and water degradation. And with that, they, for example, in India, there are certain varieties of rice that are three metres tall. And they're three metres tall because they have massive big floods that move past in those areas, so they need to be that big, right? But when we started using fertilisers and destroying the soil, those three metre tall uh, rice crops ended up lodging and on the ground. Is that the dwarf rice that people talk about? So that that is, and so these tall varieties, right, ended up on the ground because mm-hmm. we destroyed the soil and the roots couldn't penetrate to give them a proper anchor, mm-hmm. and so that was the beginning of engineering crops to be dwarf varieties, right, and the beginning of the loss of all of the genetic diversity in countries like India, where there was you know thousands of varieties of rice being grown. And it turned into a monoculture with all of the, you know, lessened resilience, less diversity, things that we've talked uh, about a fair amount on the show. Ross, you are derailing Louise's story. I'd like to continue along. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) you learned about the Green Revolution. You saw that we've been pillaging our earth of an incredible resource, um, which is the health of the soil. Then what happened? Well, I started to realise that, you know, what's happening in developing countries is also happening in Australia, right? So the wheat belt of Western Australia covers 200,000 square kilometres. We have removed 97% of the vegetation of the wheat belt. Um, And as a result of that, we've got a severely degraded environment that's turning into a desert. And the impact of that on the people who live in the wheat belt and our ecosystem in Western Australia is very significant. So the causes are all the same. And I I was like, okay, you know, I want to do something about this. (laughs) And so it was a long journey. I I started off by taking a course, a one-day course in biodynamics, and I learned how to make compost. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is exciting. And I got really obsessed with compost, made it everywhere in every opportunity I could, and I'd teach heaps of people about making compost. And it took quite a few years for me to make the connection between compost and soil. And then when I made the connection there, I was like, wow, if we have control of our soils, you know, if we're looking after them and we're taking care of them, they're taking care of us. We don't need the fertilizer. We don't need the pesticide. We don't need the bank. You know, we just need sunlight and and healthy soil, you know. And so that's where I began to realize that that's the pathway to sovereignty, for farmers, uh, rural communities, third world countries. And yeah, that, that's how I got into that. Yeah, you became a compost freak, it sounds like. Yes. You're one of those people at parties, it's like, oh God, I'm going to have to hear about compost again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally obsessed. <laughs> okay, so take, take us through the basics. I mean, we both live in Seattle where actually there's municipal compost, which means we take our food waste and put it out in a special bin and I don't know where it goes. I know the city takes it away. It does does something with it. But what are the different types of compost? What's the difference between people who might individually make their own compost versus the things that are happening at the municipal level? I'll just start with those questions. 
Oh, that's that's a very big question. Um, there is compost and there is compost. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do we got, Krista? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my focus is on creating aerobic compost. So my learning started with Dr. Elaine Ingham, who you'd all be very familiar with. And I spent many years working with her, her technology. And then now I'm working with Pfeiffer Luki technology. So it's aerobic compost, um, very intensively managed and monitored. It's exceptionally good quality stuff that, that gets great results in the field. So yeah, it's not just uh, a whole pile of stuff that you mash up together and you just put it in the corner and you go, she'll be right, mate. Uh, that, it's a bit more complex than that. It was just like a garbage pile. <laughs> it did not work when I did that. It just smelled bad. It just oh. smelled, yeah, it was an eyesore. <laughs> so that, that's not how you do it. No. You have to manage it more intensively. Very that. intensively, actually, yeah. yeah. So we monitor it every single day and, and that monitoring informs our management. And so, you know, a compost pile is a living entity. And we, we like it like a child that, you know, sometimes it wants milk and sometimes it wants food and sometimes it wants to sleep. And, you know, so we, we just have to look after it, how it's, you know, how it speaks to us. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sometimes it puts on a tenter, temper tantrum and you can't really figure out why it's angry at you. Yes, I've had those experiences. Uh, okay, so then how does it get used? We, we hear farmers talking about compost tea. So what what does that mean? Is that a certain way to apply the compost or like what what are we talking about here? What's the value of compost? So let's start with the we're talking about compost tea, right? So compost tea is usually um comes from the work of Dr. Elaine Ingham and what we're talking about here is a compost that is diluted into water and then we feed it and we brew it to grow the populations in that material and then we use it on our fields. It's quite distinct from a compost extract. So my focus, what I work on, is compost extracts. When we're using compost extracts, we liquefy the compost in water and what is remaining is all the microorganisms that are living, all the microorganisms that are dormant, spores of various different fungis, and we also have a whole heap of metabolites and enzymes and phytochemicals that are the byproducts of microbial digestion that are also stimulants for plants and and have disease suppressive qualities and detoxification qualities. So there's a lot lot in there. Um, And yeah, so, so I mainly work with extracts. Okay, so take us from compost to uh, where Australia has gone in the last little bit of time. I know that there's been climate policy changes. You've been involved in the soil methodology side of things. God, this is a big question, I guess. What, what was your role in it? And just generally, what's an overview of what Australia is doing for climate change and soil health? Okay. So in 2006, I worked for a company that was selling biodiversity carbon offsets under the Kyoto Protocol. I was selling those to multinational companies all over the world, and that required me to understand a lot about the motivations for someone to participate in a voluntary carbon project. Then in 2007, I attended Dr. Christine Jones' Managing the Carbon Cycle conference in Katanning in Western Australia, and from there, a whole heap of things clicked in for me, and I really understood, wow, the power of soil. The power of soil to sequester carbon is incredible. So at that time, any individual could approach the Australian government and recommend a methodology. And so I approached the Australian government and started talking to them about establishing a methodology. And they really had no idea what I was talking about. And I'm like, oh, this is a little bit difficult. 
And then they started ringing me and asking me questions about soil carbon and soil carbon sequestration. And I'm going, hey, man, I'm not the expert here. This is pretty obvious, but like I thought you guys would do that. Anyway, so I kind of went down a rabbit hole for quite a while trying to figure it all out. And then I thought, no, 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 this is a really, really deep rabbit hole. I'm just going to pull myself out of it. Now I'm going to sit and wait. So I waited 12 years until last year the measured soil carbon sequestration methodology was approved by the Australian government. So what's really exciting about the potential in Australia is that we have a sovereign market. So the Australian government procures carbon credits to address its nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. We also have a voluntary market that's emerging and we also have a compliance market that's likely to grow significantly. So it's almost like a, an emissions trading scheme or a cap and trade scheme. We don't call it that. And most Australians are not aware that we have that mechanism in Australia, which is I find quite interesting. Um, so the opportunity is huge. It's really significant. There's a lot of very fun things to unpack there, and we could probably spend a whole podcast on each one of them individually. I think the way that you distinguished the three markets is quite important to both say there's a voluntary market, there's a national market, and there's a sovereign. And I think sovereign is important because, of course, climate change is a global problem, and all these countries came together in the Conference of the Parties in Paris a couple of years ago to come up with these contributions that they wanted to make. At the end of the day, still not enough. Uh, we need to do more, but it needs to be possible to monetize the addition of carbon to the soils because that obviously, or really any process, but here we're talking about soil carbon. I want to go, I guess, not to get too political, but I want to pick up on this comment where you said like most Australians don't really know that this is actually in place. And also sort of there are swings to the left and the right and people maybe in the same way in the United States say, well, climate change isn't really a problem. Let's elect um, certain politicians who might think a certain way, which really potentially challenges things. So as this person who went down the rabbit hole and then the rabbit who sort of sat patiently and now it's all happening again, what was it that you had to sit through? What are some of the political forces that you're up against in these markets? And what are you might want to cool it on the uh, rabbit references in Australia. I know that's a sensitive <laughs> issue. So, uh, yeah, you picked up on that, didn't you? Ross? Thank I, you. I ruined your comment, so please. You just please. had to state the obvious. Um, but okay, so but how has the political climate in Australia changed over time? And what gives you hope? What gives you fear about how things are going from a policy side? Well, the political climate in Australia is changing every day. People joke that we've got seven living prime ministers in Australia. I think we've, I don't know how many prime ministers, we've had four prime ministers in the last eight years or something. You know, it's crazy. And they, you know, they're constantly knocking each other off. And I mean, I'm kind of beyond government now, to be honest with you, because I see this globally. Way back when I was um, working in 2006 selling Kyoto Protocol offsets, Companies were already all over this. They were already way ahead of the government and policymakers in Australia. Even today, you know, our, our big companies, we have this thing called the Carbon Disclosure Project. And under the Carbon Disclosure Project, they have priced in carbon. It's currently priced in at $18 a tonne. It's already on their balance sheet. You know, unfortunately, they've been waiting for leadership from the government to actually you know, put that into place. But they desperately require that certainty for a whole heap of reasons. 
investment certainty going forward, you know, some of these carbon intensive investments that are kind of sitting waiting, you know, they're waiting because we don't have this certainty. We don't know where, where we're going, you know. So in Australia, it's like causing chaos in our electricity market, particularly on the East Coast. And people probably don't realize that, you know, climate change and carbon and all of these things are actually what's creating this chaos and this lack of uncertainty that's stifling investment and so forth. So I do believe that the corporations are going to drive these changes. Although, you know, when did we get Tony Abbott? We got him in 2012 or something. You know, that was the corporations lobbying and, you know, you know, axe attacks and, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just what? a circus. Axe tax? Axe the tax, the carbon oh, tax, oh, right? I said axe tax. I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. that's dangerous. Okay. Yeah, because we, 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 um, we did have a carbon tax in Australia for a very small period of time and the change of government, they repealed that. If we had have had the carbon tax, my God, we would be so far ahead of the rest of the world right now. Australia would be miles ahead. It was a very, very well-considered piece of policy that would have served us ex- exceptionally well. So it's it's a tragedy that we've lost 10 years, but we can make that time up again. I'm really hoping that we get really strong leadership from corporations to drive this because I think that's the only place where it can be driven from. It's not an individual effort that's going to get us across the line. It's a, it's a really big – we need lots of resources into it. What's the motivation for corporations doing this? Are they trying to front run legislation which might be more punitive than something that they might undertake? Or might they be able to have a good example for government to look to and say, hey, look, like we're already doing most of this. So if you are going to make policy changes, maybe use our model. Is it something like that? Is it something I'm missing? This It's global. This issue is a global issue, right? There are a lot of countries in the world that are taking really serious action on climate change and they're really ramping up their ambitions in terms of their emissions reductions and to do that they have to change their infrastructure their technology they have to invest in clean technology and those companies are not going to be very appreciative of Australia's dirty exports landing on their doorstep and undermining their progression towards a zero carbon economy they're going to put taxes on our exports <laughs> it's like a, a geopolitical trade policy angle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That, I'm completely confident that that's going to happen. You know, so we can either pay these huge tariffs or we can clean our act up and at the same time restore out the ecosystems of our country that desperately need that support. Well, one comment that was made at this conference was around the innovation that happens on the fringes in extreme weather and Australia unfortunately, has suffered from years of drought. And so it seems to me like a driving force sometimes for soil carbon sequestration might be, well, this is going to be good for me because I'll store more water and I'll become more resilient. How do you see that playing out? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, adversity, struggle, debt, almost losing your farm, communities falling apart. These are all very powerful drivers for change. And, you know, when people are hurting, that's where the change is going to come. Yeah, we love speaking with people at soil health conferences because Nori is very appealing. There are so many reasons to care about the quality of one's soil and being resilient to weather events that they might not otherwise be able to sustain, like the amount of water they can take into the soil that helps them during drought times. There's a lot of really good reasons to care about this. And carbon policy is just maybe 
one thing that's tacked on top of that that's an extra incentive in addition to all these endogenous incentives to do so. There was no question there. So. Uh, I got a question. I'll just pick up what you put down and say, as we were walking over here, Louise and I both remarked, well, it's funny, at this entire conference, a word which was not uttered once was climate change. Huh. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know. That that was my question to you. I, I, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we can we can sort of conjecture, whatever. Yeah, we have some theories on it. I think culturally, maybe some of the no-till space is a bit closer to conventional egg. Like if you go to a permaculture conference, oftentimes it's, I've met more like first generation people involved in that space or they're committed to agriculture and soil for ideological reasons. Whereas a lot of the no-till conferences seem to be quite practical. And then that leads itself into broader conversations about soil biology and caring about these things. But it doesn't seem like I've met a ton of farmers at these conferences that start farming a different way for the climate. There's some, sort of like an incentive, whether that's soil health or, or payments for uh, sequestering carbon dioxide. That is often more of a driver than some ideological commitment. Is that maybe a, a good place to to start there? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's Louise is giving the like no comment vibes and it's, it's just interesting. So, <laughs> I, but I, I want to go back to the, to this methodology that she built and sort of paint the connection or parallels between what Nori is trying to do and really just say like there's extreme synergy between really any market that's working to monetize ecosystem services and carbon sequestration because what the methodology and I'll let you say it because you were one of the sort of leaders of pushing it forward you can probably say it much better than I can and talk about how it works but what it enables is something that ultimately will empower a lot of what Nori would require. So even if we wanted to start in Australia, we're not there yet because the reference network of all the different soil samples don't exist in the same way they do in the United States, which is why we're starting here. But in a future perfect world, what we might be able to create creates one option of hopefully several options where you have a perhaps different voluntary markets, different compliance markets. Farmers, take your pick. How do you want to sell your carbon? If you're farming carbon, you can get paid. And the more soil samples are taken, we can predict with greater resolution. The more that we have various ways to reduce the estimation error from different satellite imagery or various techniques, it improves all of that. And so I just want to kind of state we're very much on the same team and very keen to see this roll out as quickly as possible and be able to support it. But could you kind of, and to put it in your words over, over dinner, when we connected, you're saying, well, it's extremely thorough and very complex. And so I'm going to challenge you in as simple terms as possible. Can you explain how the methodology works? Yeah, well, it's a measured methodology, which means that we begin with a baseline and we test the soil in the paddock. And then after a few years, we come back and we test it again. And you get paid on the increases, hopefully increases, <laughs> in soil carbon sequestration that you achieve. There are some pretty significant obligations to participate in such a program. Um, you have to maintain the permanence of that carbon in the soil for a minimum of 25 years and in some cases up to 100 years. So, you know, it's a very significant undertaking uh, with some pretty detailed legal structures sitting behind it. So, yeah, we're taking it pretty seriously in Australia. Good. 
as one should. Um, <laughs> I hope you're not implying that Nori's not. Um, but no. <laughs> talk, 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 talk to us about the rollout. He's very, um, he's very sensitive. I'm sorry. sorry yeah. Hair trigger. <laughs> so how, how is this going to roll out? You said, you know, you waited and now 2018, things are finally happening. So what can the world look for and where, where can we sort of watch this unfold? Well, we've uh, developed a pilot project. And that pilot project will engage 20 farmers in each agricultural region from uh, Geraldton to Esperance. So we're looking at about 60 farms across that area over a land base of about 240,000 hectares. So it's a, it's a pretty big pilot. And so then, you know, once we enrol those people, we, we do the baselining and off we go. But, but I think the really important thing to appreciate about these kinds of projects, and in particularly in Australia, you do need to have a degree of scale for them to be viable. So if we were to attempt to do this with just one farm, it would cost us four times what it costs us to do it at this larger scale. So that's really a critical component. Another component is that the change is quite significant. And, you know, the, the social and cultural norms that have been dominant through our agricultural practices and our agricultural communities are hard to change because of all these, these social pressures. So we really need to support farmers as human beings, you know, who have a whole heap of belief systems and ways of looking at their farms and, and things that, you know, have kind of led to the problem that we're in. You know, changing that's not a small undertaking and it's it's a really it's a community and it's a people process so um, we've built very detailed extensive support networks around farmers to to help them with that really glad that you're talking about the sort of changing the management practices and the education that goes along with it which is a core component to seeing lasting and systemic change and it's kind of the perfect segue to talk about one of the organizations that you founded which is Intuit Earth Yes. So how does that work and what do you do? Okay, so uh, Intuit Earth, uh, in this program, Intuit Earth um, has designed a four-year program of education and training for farmers that's delivered by experts from all over the world. In fact, uh, there are a few people who have been teaching here over the last few days that will be joining us in Australia to, to deliver various elements of the program. We've also set up a structure that enables us to embed these new paradigms, these new ways of doing things, this new knowledge into institutions within rural communities, right? So, you know, having extension agents and, and peers in the communities working directly with them and also the farmers in that community. So, yeah, that, that's a big part of what Intuit Earth does. As well as everything else, um, you know, <laughs> doing all of the baselining and setting up the programs and, you know, finding the buyers for the credits and, yeah, the whole thing. So, yeah, it's a cradle to grave kind of approach to this business. I'm very, I don't know. Do you want to dig into the, some of the nerdy details of baseline generation? I'd like to hear about the kind of data you're getting for the soil, how much it Cost. How do people uh, verify under this regime how much carbon is actually going into the soil? Or is this a derailment and you prefer to go somewhere else? Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how you're figuring out how much carbon is going into the soil? Yeah. So we take soil samples down to one meter. So we, we've got a you know we've got a big bucket that we're working with here, yeah. and then those soil 
samples are tested in the lab to determine what values we get. So uh, this is at the start, right? At the very beginning, yeah. Okay, and then you're determining. Yeah, maybe maybe you should just tell me more before I jump in. And I can put it in English for you. So you scoop it up, burn it down. What's left over is the soil organic carbon, correct? <laughs> yeah, something like that. And, yeah. and you're are you developing a baseline like by farm or or is it something like that's regional? Each farm. Each farm. Okay. Yeah. Each farm. Each paddock. Each paddock. Yeah. Which is a, a field, we might say, or, or is the term different in some way? Well, mm, technically, they're called carbon estimation areas, and mm-hmm. carbon estimation areas are t- defined by soil types and topography, mm-hmm. and you know how the paddock is used, whether it's uh, you know it's wooded or whether it's a pasture or whether it's a uh, a cropping paddock. So yeah, and that's all very very technical stuff, which is beyond me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of statistics and maths, and you know, yeah, it's very complicated stuff. Okay. So you, you um, actually do soil testing at the beginning. Yes. Are you doing soil testing throughout the duration of these contracts and yes. their participation? Yes. Yeah. What, what's the size? Like for one of these tests, how many acres does this cover? Or like how big is the carbon estimation area? Yeah, that's defined by the soil types and, and uh, what's uh, happening on that particular piece of land. So that's it's unique. It's, you know, we, we don't just like, you know, get a grid and put it over a farm and go, okay, this one, this one, this one. It's like, bit more complex than that yeah so it costs us about um over an eight-year period it costs us 24 dollars a hectare to do this baseline testing so it's it's pretty good <laughs> i mean i you know we, we've kind of you know at, on very conservative modeling after our expenses if we achieve a two-ton carbon sequestration per hectare per year we could be profiting something like 50 dollars per hectare which is very significant for a wheat belt farmer yeah, I've heard, isn't it something like $30 a pop for soil tests in the United States? So, It it depends on what soil tests we're talking about and how rigorous they're done and what else you're testing for. Uh, so it's not quite that simple. Um, uh, yeah, we were talking about this over dinner the other day about because you know, our model, we, we lean on Comet Farm to make estimations and then we ground truth at the end of the 10-year period how much carbon actually went in. So we don't rely nearly as much on soil testing, though I would predict, and Christoph can correct me if I'm wrong, that the price for soil testing, especially with an incentive like in Australia or under Nori or any other carbon system, there's a pretty good business case to be developing inexpensive, reusable, novel ways of testing soil carbon. And I think more will come, right? Right. And as, as I alluded to, in the United States, there's quite a strong reference network of different soil types, which is why we're so keen on the approach that Louise is advocating for, because it will naturally develop that reference network, which improves underlying models to enable the estimation of soil organic carbon. So it's kind of like the more tests, the better. And also, indeed, we are having a full audit at year 10 we would certainly welcome additional data from soil tests that farmers might do. And oftentimes farmers want to do soil tests because it's giving them more data on how to farm better. And so it's kind of like you're paying for things, not for the carbon benefit, but because it's helping you make better economic decisions. And so it's really nice to think about, well, if you're going to do that anyway, how can I tack on to improve and reduce the estimation error? Sorry, I might've just filled in the gaps and then destroyed any question that you had. So Ross, I'll pass it back to you. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, well, where do you see this going in the next couple of years? You have a, a pilot ongoing now. I'm sure you'll learn a lot as any pilot one hopes to learn a lot from. And then where where would you like to see this project go in the next five, 10 years? 
Well, um, our mission is to regenerate the wheat belt of Western Australia. That's a pretty big landmass. How, <laughs> so how big did you say it was? It's 200 square kilometres. 200,000 square kilometres, sorry. So it's, it's the size of the UK. Yeah, yeah. and it's a it's a magnificent landscape. The, the biodiversity in the wheat belt prior to being cleared is just phenomenal. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, and it has so much potential to support us, you know, for employment, culture, and I'd like it returned to its glory. So let's take it full circle with your compost obsession. <laughs> <laughs> How much compost will be needed for that two hundred thousand square kilometer area? Well, you know, that's that's a great question because a, a lot of people say, oh, well, Louise, you know, you're never going to be able to make enough compost to deal with the wheat belt. <laughs> and, um, and, Challenge and, accepted. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a really concrete example of farmers that I'm working with that are actually using the compost. So these farmers are uh, in, you know, fairly marginal area in the wheat belt of Western Australia, that Ian and Diane Haggerty, who uh, I think Charlie Massey might have referred to, and they are cropping 13,000 hectares, right? It's a lot of... That's a big piece that's of property. It's a, a big property. Yeah. And they use about 30 tonnes of the compost that I manufacture for their entire program over 13,000 hectares. So a little bit of really good compost goes a really long way. We don't have any tr problem with that. We've got plenty of compost to do this job. That's amazing. I think we should start concluding. We have to unfortunately run off to another event here soon. Otherwise, I'm sure we could spend a lot of time together, Louise, and I hope we do in the future. I want to ask you, um, it sounds like the book or the author you referenced at the beginning, is there... Uh, foundational text one might want to read if they wanted to get inside the eco-feminist uh, headspace. I'd be personally interested. I'm sure our readers, our, our listeners are readers, I, or they just get book recommendations from us constantly and it's overwhelming. Sorry. So, <laughs> but what's, where's a good place to start if, if they were to learn about that? And maybe, maybe uh, some other book that you might want to recommend. Yeah. Well, um, Vandana Shiva is, uh, she's a well-published author She's written lots of really, really great books. She's a fantastic speaker. Um, you'll find stuff from her all over the place. So, um, yeah, she's pretty pretty easy to access. Okay. Is it possible that we're eco-feminists without knowing it? And if not, what can I do to become one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, I always get a little bit like, oh, don't use that word feminist, Louise. <laughs> it's like that's dangerous territory. <laughs> um, I don't consider myself to be a feminist, and that's not really the foundation of what I'm about. I mean, there's, there's just similarities between the oppression of nature and the oppression of women, you know, and you can, you can make those, those connections quite easily. We need to change our relationship to the land, you know, and, and I, I don't like making these things masculine or feminine, you know, we just got to nurture the land and nurture ourselves and nurture each other. And that's really what being human is about, I think. And if we can get into that essence, then we might have a future on the planet. That's like a great sentiment. I can't imagine anyone would could even possibly disagree with that. If you do, feel free to write to us at hello at nori.com. <laughs> feel free to criticize the way we do our podcast, us personally, the way we look in this video. Hello to our Australian now <laughs> video viewers. Thanks for being with us, Louise. We, we want to speak with you a lot more. We think you have a lot of knowledge. You've been so involved with soil carbon methodology, and, and we'd like to continue the conversation off the air and uh, continue collaborating as much as possible. And I'm just excited. I, 
want to give a shout out again to the internet as a great way to connect people. I met I met Louise through LinkedIn, and it's it's really a fabulous tool. Not trying to promote LinkedIn, but it if you know what you want and you know who you're looking for, um, it's really valuable. And I think those who have the entrepreneurial spirit want to roll their sleeves up, get things done, share best practices. Do things, try them out, find the others who are doing things slightly differently and say, okay, what can we all learn from each other? I think there's a lot of common ground and the world needs it a whole lot more, a whole lot more quickly. So that's my challenge to you listeners. Find what you're passionate about, share it with other people, find others working with it and build this broad community. Louise, we'd like to sort of give our guests the final word. So feel free to take us home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd just like to say that I'm like totally amazed with what many of the farmers here are doing. It's incredible stuff. And like taking these stories back to Australia, like people are going to go, no way. There's no way you can grow a crop without fertilizer and without pesticides and without herbicides. And no way you can outbeat a conventional yield. And these guys are doing it like in a big way. And they're loving it and they're passionate about what they're doing. It's very exciting and I, I just love to be able to bring some of that energy and enthusiasm and passion back to Australia. So it's um it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah, they, they really are optimistic at these conferences. I imagine some uh, farming conferences are quite dour in comparison. They're optimistic and creative. And uh, Christoph and I try to shut up as much as possible while we're here. We call it listening tours, try to just observe and, and uh, fit in as much as possible. We always, I don't know, I get a lot out of these every time. I'm sure we'll continue going. But thanks for being here, Louise. If you like the podcast, please review it, share it, give us a good rating in your app, subscribe to our newsletter, go to nori.com, get involved for free to. Drop us a note at hello at nori.com. What did I forget last time that you chided me and jumped in on? Subscribe. Oh, and subscribe. Please subscribe uh, and help us grow. And uh, thank you, Louise. Yeah, thank you very much.